0: Alright, this is Ricky, and this is Brendan, and you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement.
1: What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because even though it did not share the pains we share, oh, that American idea, friends made all the arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz.
0: All right, Brendan. So we're here um, a little after eight PM on August the fifteenth. Um, it's a it's it is a, a momentous day for for a number of reasons. But uh, big a little trivia question: what what's important about about this day in particular?
2: All right. The the only thing that I had on my head was this: the one year anniversary of the United States exiting Afghanistan but I imagine you're looking for something else here
0: it uh, as I said for a number of occasions or for a number of reasons and that certainly is one of them it is also and you actually sent me an article about this earlier this week today is the day the 75th anniversary of India's independence from Great Britain um so but <laughs> it is certainly uh a day to remember in in history. That is that is
2: interesting. Yeah. All right. Thanks for bringing a little little history to the podcast. We yeah. Appreciate that.
0: Well, yeah. Like, sadly enough, I really don't know much beyond that. August fifteenth is the Independence Day, so maybe next time uh, we'll try, try and try and bring a little more more facts to the conversation. But I know we have a loaded schedule, so what are uh, what are we getting into today?
2: Yeah. There's been a bunch of topics that we have kicked around between the two of us via text and in person over the last couple of weeks that we just haven't had a chance to talk about, largely because we've been really fortunate to have some tremendous guests on over the past couple of weeks, including Dan Fishman, who was on last week, the executive director of People for Liberty, and J.B. Karchik, the author and, and writer, who was on two episodes ago. So, uh, but because those episodes have been guest-driven and guest-focused... Uh, we haven't had a chance to touch on a bunch of things that have been in the news over the course of the past month. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to run through six different topics, max of 10 minutes on each. So we're going we're gonna to give ourselves, we're going to start a little timer for ourselves and keep ourselves to under 10 minutes on each. So to run down, we're going to talk about the United States killing the leader of Al-Qaeda I'm on Al-Zawari. Um, we're going to talk about the, the FBI's search of President, former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate. We're going to talk about the incarceration of Brittany Griner in Russia. We're going to talk about Taiwan and Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan that recently occurred. We're going to talk about Kansas and the vote to the vote to... Wrote down an amendment uh, that would have potentially placed more restrictions on abortion rights. And topic number six is. Is it Brittany Griner? Did we do that? No, I said Brittany Griner. Trump search. said that. Oh, oh, uh, the what Democrats have been doing in a bunch of elections to boost far-right MAGA candidates. So those those are the six topics. Good sign that even I couldn't remember them to start. So hopefully you can remember them out there.
0: That sign, even though that I'm listening to you, I couldn't follow along with the topics. So. My uh, not, not, not points
2: to your listening skills right there. <laughs> all right. But before we get into all that, we do want to remind everyone that this podcast is brought to you by the Hardworking Craftsman over at Cannon Hill Woodworking As you know, if you've been listening, they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks here in Boston since 2018. That's Canon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or you can visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. And Ricky, with all of this heat that's been going on over the past few weeks, I was wondering, hopefully you've had a chance to go to the beach or maybe to the pool, but what do trees wear to the beach? I don't know, Brendan. What do they wear? (laughs) Swim trunks, of course.
0: (laughs) They get better and better. They really do.
2: All right. Well, without further ado, let's head into topic number one. All right. So, 10 minutes on the clock, we're going to kick off our topics with the United States killing of al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawari. Apologies if I am not saying his name right, but we figured on the one-year anniversary of the United States exiting Afghanistan after our 20-year-long war there that this would be uh, a topic that would be appropriate to to kick off with. Uh, So al-Zawari was the figurehead of al-Qaeda. He had been the leader since Osama bin Laden had been killed back in 2011. He had his hand in a number of terrorist operations during his time as uh, Bin Laden's deputy, including the 1998 U.S. embassy bombings in Kenya and Tanzania, um, the 2002 Bali bombings. He was involved in the assassination of former Egyptian president Nwar Sadat, and, and then was had a number of was in charge of a number of operations in Egypt, including the. Uh, attack on the Egyptian embassy in Pakistan, uh, and he formally merged the Egyptian Islamic Jihad, where he started with Al-Qaeda in 2001 and became Bin Laden's deputy in 2004. Uh, but he is most known for being allegedly the mastermind behind the September 11th attacks. So just last week, President Biden announced that the United States had killed Al-Zawari in Kabul, uh, the capital of Afghanistan where he had recently moved that killed him by means of an unmanned drone strike. And there's a lot to unpack. I, I guess my first reaction was like good riddance. I thought it was really great. And then like most things, you peel back some of the layers and it becomes a little bit more complicated than that. But what are some of your reactions upon hearing the news that the United States did finally get one of their, their main men?
0: Yeah, I mean, you, I think you laid out the case against him perfectly. I don't think I have really, like, I don't, I don't necessarily see any like point in defending him, but at the same time, I still think that this was the wrong thing to do. They launched a drone strike in a residential area of a country that we're supposedly no longer at war with, right? Like, there's just uh, so many things wrong about that um that it's like you know do the ends justify the means and again a country that like seems to want to live up to these high lofty ideals and principles that doesn't want to play by the same rules and of course you can argue well terrorists don't play by the rules and it's like well it depends on you know what bar you're trying to live by um do these do these things matter? And, and, and of course, you know, in this particular instance, it sounds like there were no other casualties, but again, a drone strike in a residential area, whether somebody else died or not, definitely there were people who are living there going about their normal lives, probably now scared, you know, shitless for lack of a better word that this could happen to my house. This could happen to me and, you know, they may or may not have anything to do with this. And so, yeah, I mean, it it sounds like he was a really bad guy. I'll ask you this, Brendan: Had you ever heard his name before uh, we you found out that he was killed by a drone?
2: Yeah, he was one of those guys that if you pay attention, I think at all to like the the terrorist organizations. He was once he ascended to the to the mantle of Al Qaeda's leader after Bin Laden was killed. I think you can make a, a solid argument that al-Qaeda is not nearly the threat to the United States and the West that it once was, where al-Qaeda is strongest is probably in eastern Africa, maybe northern Africa, maybe a little bit in Syria. But that al-Zawari, while he was the figurehead of the organization, no longer commanded an organization that was nearly as, as threatening and deadly to the United States as it was in the late 90s and early 2000s under bin Laden. I think people universally acknowledge that bin Laden was a much more charismatic figure that had a lot of followers. While well, also where he never quite reached that status um, while he was maybe kind of quote unquote better at uh, operations in the background. So I think that's a fair point. But Yeah, I, I had heard of him. And so again, my first reaction was, of course, like good riddance. I think it's it's a credit to the United States intelligence and the United States military that 20 years later, we're able to track this guy and find him and carry out uh, in for, uh, I don't know how I'm going to phrase this, but get justice for someone that had been responsible for the killings of thousands of Americans and potentially more tens of thousands of people around the world. I don't think either of us would disagree that, the world is probably a better place is better off without him here. But I think some of your points are well taken that a drone strike in the middle of a country certainly violates their sovereignty. And you've done a, a good job consistently over the course of this podcast to make me question, well, if that happened here in the United States, if the Taliban found some American that they felt had carried out atrocities in Afghanistan and they killed someone in Washington in this middle of Washington, D.C. with an unmanned drone strike. How, how would we feel about that? And I think that's a fair question to ask.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we know we would be going to war tomorrow. And obviously the U.S. can kind of have unity because it can throw its weight around in these sort of situations, which, you know, we're very fortunate to be on, on this side of the, of the, you know, whatever, the, the proverbial shoe, as it were. It's, um, I, I, I still think it, is problematic for the way that we like would well one for our values and how we would espouse like you know use the term justice like we know of people who commit serial murders here we would never even you know even forget in a foreign country we wouldn't launch a drone strike on a somebody who is like hold up in a house because we hadn't all this evidence that he was a serial killer like that just wouldn't happen right we'd have to capture him and put him on trial and bring the evidence before him and we wouldn't be able to tell this like one not not i'm not saying that there are multiple sides to this particular story but at the end of the day our justice system is like founded on the fact that everybody kind of gets their day in court now of course war is a different story but as you mentioned and as is as we know, given this is the one year anniversary that we pulled out of that war is that we're no longer at war with Afghanistan
2: sure, and that's where it's certainly a very tricky gray area, and there are no like easy answers here where the reason that Zawari is just chilling in the middle of Kabul is because the Taliban's back in charge, and from all accounts that this was a very secure area that like with a lot of really nice homes, and that people Don't just like get in and get houses there. It seems pretty obvious that the Taliban knew he was living there, which violates this agreement the United States made with the Taliban back in 2020 called the Doha agreement that the Taliban wouldn't allow terrorist leaders and terrorist organizations to operate within their borders. So the Taliban is arguably violating that agreement, the United States in carrying out an attack in sovereign territory are also violating that agreement. So not that two wrongs make them right, right, but it's it's just that that tricky spot. Credit to the military operatives in the Biden organization, by the Biden administration that, like you said, there weren't, as far as we know, any civilian casualties. That's great. But that doesn't mean that this doesn't have an effect. I read some quotes from um, Afghanis, and they were saying, Look, like, look, after all of these years of war, you kind of thought you could maybe like breathe a little bit, and all of a sudden there's this huge explosion in our residential neighborhood, and someone else said that the fact that Americans can do this means that Afghanistan still belongs to America. If They're able to just carry out strikes throughout the country, whatever they want. That doesn't, doesn't really speak that America is like no longer in control of our country, which goes back to stuff we talked about repeatedly about anger of, of the United States presence in these places. So it's just, it was, it's more complicated than it was at the top for sure. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. Perhaps we leave it there.
2: Boom, nine minutes. All right, on on to the next one. So sticking with the foreign relations theme, wanna talk about Taiwan. And so recently speaker Nancy Pelosi became the highest ranking member of the United States government to visit Taiwan in, I think, 25 years. I believe uh, the former Speaker Newt Gingrich visited in, in 97. But Speaker Pelosi's visit drew serious and harsh condemnations from the Chinese government and a little bit of backlash within the Biden administration. Really interesting. So just before we get into Speaker Pelosi's visit, just to do a very brief overview of Taiwan. Taiwan is a series of islands that are off the coast of China. They are governed. The official name of Taiwan is Republic of China. But the People's Republic of China, which is all of mainland China, recognizes Taiwan as part of it. So China has this like one China policy where they believe that Taiwan is officially theirs. Taiwan or the Republic of China does not believe that they should be governed. They believe that they're the sole actual governing body of all of China. So it's been super contentious for years. And the United States has always officially maintained a one China policy, meaning that ostensibly the United States agrees that the People's Republic of China has official dominion, sovereignty over Taiwan while you know the United States is doing that with their left hand, with their right hand they're entering into arms agreements with Taiwan. They have separate trade agreements with Taiwan. There's different delegations that go to Taiwan. So the United States has walked this this very thin, dangerous line for a long time. Uh, Speaker Pelosi's visit inflamed tensions with Taiwan. The with China, uh, Xi Jinping, the leader of China, has is facing some difficulties in his country, as many leaders across the world are, with his reaction to COVID. China quite infamously has a zero COVID policy, which locks down large segments of the population whenever cases are discovered. That has had a huge negative impact on the economy, not to mention like people's freedom. Uh, And so he's facing a little bit of turmoil in his own country. And then to have one of the leaders of the United States government go and visit Taiwan, in an arguably antagonistic move, was challenging for Xi Jinping, I think. Uh, So recently, over the course of the last week, China has been conducting significant military exercises around Taiwan, including in some of the waters that Taiwan considers theirs. And I guess the final thing before I'll throw it to you for your thoughts on it all was like the reaction in the United States was really interesting, where The Biden administration seemed to push back pretty significantly on Speaker Pelosi going to visit, arguing that it was just going to inflame tensions with Taiwan, that for a number of reasons, the United States didn't need to be angering China at this point, while Speaker Pelosi actually got bipartisan support from other members of Congress from both Leader Schumer and Minority Leader uh, McConnell, both of whom McConnell in particular came out and said, "No, we can't let China dictate where we go. If we want to go and visit, you know, Taiwan, we should be able to do so. We shouldn't just bow to what China is saying." So it was a really interesting. Speaker Pelosi, after much debate about it, did end up going to Taiwan and, and meeting with uh, the Taiwanese president, and they had discussions. There were photo opportunities, and now it appears there's another delegation going. Uh, Senator Ed Markey is from Massachusetts, actually leading that delegation with four other Democratic members of Congress. So what were all your thoughts, the big hubbubaloo about Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan? Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, I guess a, a lot of thoughts, but not none of them all that surprising. I mean, I think the first one is that a lot of, and we've talked about this in the past, like, the there is very little differentiation in reality between the democratic party and the republican party when it comes to foreign policy like the only things that you get unanimous consent on is like where are we sending money and how is it going to hurt china or russia right like that's all always like we got money for that but nothing else it's I I don't understand. I don't understand the move. Like right now, right, we've committed somewhere north of five billion dollars for Ukraine to fight Russia. Like, are we really interested in, in getting like poking China to maybe do something in Taiwan? Like it doesn't from that perspective doesn't make sense. I think you were absolutely spot on to highlight that like Xi Jinping is undergoing like a lot of Issues, But what sort of rallies a country around a leader, then, you know, taking on your biggest enemy, right? Like, it's very easy for him to say, like, don't worry about what I was doing in COVID. Like, now it's time to show America what's what. And so for all those reasons, it was just a totally asinine move. And it doesn't, I don't, I, I really just like don't understand the strategic benefit, or the timing of it. And we need like personally i believe like we need china and russia on board with a lot of the things that we're trying to do with climate change and their you know other types of situations like the supply chain issues that we really need to get these countries to like work with us to solve problems for everyday people that right now is just not the time to be to be doing this stuff and it yeah it's it's surprising. It's disappointing. What was unsurprising is sort of a unified like we can't kowtow to China and let them tell us where we can go. And it's like, yeah, I mean, that's that's fine. Like the bravado is all fine and well to say, but China today is not the China of the '90s when Newt Gingrich went there, right? Like their economy is the second biggest in the world behind ours, and really a very big component to global trade. And so. I it doesn't have anything to do with whether you like what they're doing or not, but at to some degree we have to, there has to be some, I don't know if it's respect. I'm not saying to show some kind of deference if we were, you know, were really against their policies and their principles, even, I think that that's fine, but there's a way to do it. And this wasn't it.
2: Yeah. There's not much I disagree with, with that take at all. Well done. I, I, yeah, I think that Speaker Pelosi's visit was antagonistic, and she has long been really tough on China. That's been one of her like signature foreign policy traits since you know, she's been in office, and it just felt like she was like, I'm not going to be told what to do, whether it's by Joe Biden or by Xi Jinping. No one's going to stop me from doing what I want to do, and it's it was frustrating, like you said, not that we should never be able to go to Taiwan, like in this moment for all of the reasons that you said, it they just didn't seem prudent to do. And one of the main things that the Biden administration has been working on behind the scenes is making sure that China wasn't going to arm Russia with all the drones that the United States is arming Ukraine with. And I think largely they've held off on doing that. And then it's like, well, now we're going to send our third highest member of our government over there to like poke poke the bear I'm not intended, but totally intended. Uh, and it's it's just and it's does. It, like you said, it just seems foolish. And we're putting the people of Taiwan in this dangerous place too. Where I understand that Taiwan is very proud and don't they are not necessarily scared of a fight. But all of a sudden, you brought the military might of China to their borders when Speaker Pelosi or Senator Markey can just go back home and be like, "All right, well, I was tough on China." And yeah, that that's really frustrating. And and as we've long talked about what what can the presidential administration like really do? They can't do a ton with the economy. They can't do a ton with really a lot here domestically. But what they're really in charge of are like foreign policy. And when you have an administration, particularly an administration that's of your own party, that's asking you, like, please, can you just let us handle what we're supposed to handle? And then you go and circumvent it. That must have been incredibly frustrating to Biden. Quite, quite honestly, we haven't really seen the end of it. Like, I think we're all hopeful that China is just a lot of bark right now and bluster with these activities. But we don't really know.
0: Yeah, I, I think we certainly don't know. And in, in many ways, like, we know what Xi Jinping's plans for Taiwan have always been. He's been a huge unifier of, uh, yeah, uh, of, of China, uh, Hong Kong, uh, like, right. So, like, we know what he would like to do. And in some ways, it feels like we may have given him an excuse to do, I mean, what he's already doing. Obviously, Taiwanese people, much like Ukrainians, have sort of lived with this threat for a long time. And many of them probably don't think, that it will come to fruition. But again, like much like Ukraine, like the geographic advantages lay with China. They're not, they don't have to go very far to get to Taiwan and that makes it a very big problem. And so of course, Taiwan, you know, received Speaker Pelosi with kind of open arms because trade with the United States is very important to them. But we really like did not do them any favors here because at the, yeah, at the end of the day, that, Basically, all will be
2: and that's it. We'll leave it there on topic three. So we're going to stay overseas for topic number three and talk about the detention and subsequent incarceration of Brittany Griner. I would imagine that the vast majority of the American public hadn't heard of Brittany Griner before this all started. If you were tuned into the sports landscape, she has been one of the stars of women's basketball for the last decade. She burst onto the scene as a college freshman where she became, I think the seventh woman ever to dunk in a game. And then she became the first ever to dunk in two games. She's uh, was a dominating force for Baylor for years. I think she won at least one national title and was named like a three time all American was named the most outstanding player of the final four Since coming to the WNBA, she's been one of the best players in the NBA, has represented the United States in the Olympics in 2016 and 2020. So one of the most famous WNBA players in the country. Again, I know that's not saying a whole lot, but she she is certainly a big deal within women's basketball. As people probably know by now, she also, in addition to playing here in the United States for the WNBA, has been playing abroad, as many of the top women's players do to make more money. They play all over the world, but China and Russia have two of the major women's basketball leagues besides the WNBA here in the United States. Brittany Reiner was arrested uh, or detained originally back in February as she tried to board a plane. Allegedly, she had big canisters with hashish oil in them. She was put on trial and, unsurprisingly, in Russia's system, was found guilty. She pleaded guilty, actually, and then was sentenced to nine years in in prison. There has been outrage over her detention and incarceration and now her sentence. And now there has been talk of a prisoner exchange between the United States and Russia, including a group, grouping of Brittany Griner and Paul Whalen, who has been detained in Russia for the last three years, who was a former United States Marine. He's been detained on charges of espionage. And the rumored exchange for Griner and Whalen has been this man called Victor Bout who has the nickname the merchant of death which if it wasn't so scary and true would be kind of a cool nickname. So Ricky what are, what do you you thought about this? I feel like there's there's been a lot of people just firing from the hip with takes on this, but what are what are your thoughts on the whole situation?
0: Yeah. Um well, I, as I, as you know, I'm not, I'm one I'm not one not to fire from the hip, so I will be doing much of the same. Um I guess I'd start off by saying I feel so horribly for her. I mean, she must be absolutely terrified. Um, you know, she's like 25 or 26 years old and, um, you know, she had, like admitted to this mistake. And I don't, I don't know if when you were going abroad, when I was going abroad, like we had a, we had a, we had like an hour and a half long lecture about, uh, at, in college, about like don't travel with any drugs because if you get caught in a foreign country, like all bets are off. Like we may or may not be able to help you, um, and certain countries have way worse rules than we do. So I'll, I'll 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 say that, and not to say that this is not like a political situation because it entirely entirely is, um, but. Yeah, I don't even know why I have like a a weird instinct to like look into or to feel like there's something hypocritical about this. But like, as as we know, the U.S. has the largest prison population of the world. We also have a very long history of incarcerating people for marijuana possession. We also have a huge history of using drug laws to effectively like enforce um, political agendas. So while this is a tragic case for Brittany Griner, the person, like I feel like a lot of people are trying to use this as an indictment of why like Russia is like corrupt and they're horrible and like this, that and the other thing. And they may be all those things, but I don't know if this is the example that we as the United States want to pull on. Because we like we've done stuff like this forever. And it's like only in the last like five years have states started to decriminalize marijuana. Uh, we still have it criminalized at the federal federal level. And there are still plenty of people sitting in jails in the United States for marijuana possession. So like, what are we talking
2: about? Once again, you're not going to get a whole lot of disagreement from me. I I do think it's important to emphasize, as you rightly did, that this is terrible for Brittany Griner. It's terrible for Paul Whelan, for any member, any American that's detained abroad under what we consider unfair laws or for political reasons. If I was a family member of Brittany Griner or Paul Whelan, I would would want the United States government to do anything possible to bring her home. And so I would be, I'm totally admitting that I, I would be hypocritical here if if my uh, my mother, my wife, my sister, my my brother, whomever was in, in, in her shoes, I anything, bring anything you have to do to bring her home. So I'll I'll totally acknowledge that. And so anyone that's a friend or family member, Brittany Griner, who's pleading with the United States government to do anything they can to bring her home, I totally understand that. I do think now that I because I'm not personally affected by this and I can step back at it, it it seems it it's tricky. She pleaded guilty, she pled guilty to breaking the laws of a country in which she was living and working. And we can disagree with Russia's criminal justice system. It doesn't seem right to me. I think everyone knew that she was going to be found guilty when she went there because people are found guilty like over 90% of time when people go to tough go for criminal defense attorneys over there. But as you said, to get so outraged about another country's criminal justice system is just like classic United States of like, let's point the finger at them without turning around and like putting the thumb back at us, where as you acknowledge, we have the most people incarcerated in the world. Hundreds of thousands of them are in for drug offenses, drug offenses that are probably similar to Britney Griner's. And so if you are going to be all upset about Britney Griner's detention okay you should probably carry that same energy to the people that are probably being held down the street from you for for similar type things and um and to demand a a, a prisoner swap for someone that's responsible for creating like sowing violence and death all over the world wouldn't seem very responsible. It, uh, quite honestly, would be, have the, this is why you don't negotiate with terrorists or governments like Russia in a lot of ways is it would just gives them the perverse incentive to just arrest Americans on any sort of trumped up charges, not saying necessarily that these were, but you arrest an American you say, all right, well now we want the terrorists we had here. Infamously, uh, the most famous prisoner swap I know was when president Obama got Bo Burdell back from, I think it was Afghanistan and in, in exchange for like five Taliban prisoners. And it's like, well, this, when you when you make deals like that, all you're doing is encouraging these organizations to continue to act like this because it behooves them to do so. So, yeah, from someone that's not personally invested by it, i I would not negotiate with Russia. And quite honestly, as much as I disagree with Russia, I'm not totally sure that they've done anything really wrong here.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess i i I, I would agree with that. Also, I'm also make it clear that like my stance on on marijuana offenses as as a reason for anybody to be in prison is i'm i i am against that but yeah for exactly the reasons you outlined it's just it's a really really shitty situation but it
2: is yeah and whatever if if you like I said, and this well, this wasn't even meant to be flippant, like if you are outraged about Brittany Griner being held in jail for nine years over marijuana possession you you should look because there are probably things that you could do in your state or to contact some of like your state legislature your uh your legislators who represent your state in Congress to try to decriminalize some of some of like marijuana and other potentially other drugs that people are being held for for potentially like much longer uh sentences than britney grinder is so it's it's yeah it's not not to make light of britney Griner's situation but if, if this is something that has animated you there are things that you can do here in the united states that could ameliorate a lot of people's lives a lot easier than 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 going not that you have to not that it's one or the other but I'm just saying all right we're gonna we're gonna take it back home uh Going to, that's that wraps up our overseas topics. Taking it back home for the for the final three. Well, in bringing it back home, there's been one story that's really dominated the media over the course of the last week, and that's the as with so many things with former President Trump, the unprecedented FBI search of his of the Winter White House. His retreat down at his resort in Mar-a-Lago, Florida. Again, this is another topic with a million different takes on it. When it first came out, it was one of those things that kind of shocking, and and I guess in ways you somewhat get used to Trump being a, a shocking figure. But when when you see the headlines of like FBI searches former president's house, like that's it, it's hard to not be a little bit shocked by those things. So uh, originally there seemed to be a lot of outrage, particularly obviously from the Republicans across the spectrum of Republicans, really that the FBI and the justice department was once again, being used in a political way to harm opponents of the administration to get after president Trump, as they allegedly have been doing since he was in office five years ago and that they were, that this was all a politically motivated hack job. There were, were protestations against law enforcement, against the Biden administration, against the Justice Department, all, all across the board. And then, in quite honestly, even my reaction was like, "That's that's a big step that we're sending the FBI in to search the former president's house. Like they better have like a damn good reason for doing it." And over the course of the last week, seems like they did. And so originally, it seemed that it was like there was just there was a disagreement about record keeping about whether President Trump had left the White House with records that belonged to the National Archives Association. It's N-A-R-A. It's like the National Archives and Records Association, something like that. Um, And but as it turns out, there were documents that were allegedly top secret documents that potentially even had some nuclear information on it, which is as high level as you can get that were found in President Trump's mansion. And so it it seems seemingly things have quieted down a lot on the right. And Trump, after his big, he's the one that broke the news, obviously, with a social media post saying, oh, the FBI agents have swarmed my house. They even broke into my safe, four exclamation points. But even he's quieted down a little bit since it seems to have come out that this is not just a record-keeping fishing expedition. This was a signed affidavit, a signed warrant. And it looks like the FBI came out with exactly what they what President Trump was alleged to have had. So what are, what are your thoughts on the whole situation?
0: I, I, I saw it. It was either a tweet or a headline um, that really read like the headline to an Onion article that... Trump outraged that Justice Department being used exactly how he wanted it, how he wanted to use it. Um, <laughs> it So this, this like notion or like this idea about Trump mishandling documents and taking stuff that was supposed to be top secret and only viewed within like certain secure locations has been, I mean, floating around at least like New York Times reported, reported it probably like three or four times towards the end of his Um, towards the end of his tenure as president, uh, they talked about him like ripping stuff up and flushing it down (laughs) the white house toilet, which is, uh, not an approved shredding methodology. Um, and like, and so I guess for, for me, the idea that he would have some documents that he wasn't supposed to have was not really, uh, that part of it didn't, was not a shock certainly as you mentioned like the fbi going in uh to raid the former president's winter residence um as you as you rightly described it as unprecedented um what was just that i think the problem is of course for his supporters it doesn't matter what they find they'll all just say well it was planted there and it's a democrat hit job and a witch hunt and whatever like there's no it, as we know, there's no amount of evidence that's going to convince people of something that they don't want to be convinced about, especially when the like the answer, the rebuttal is not like, oh, I have an explanation. It's the same explanation. It's like there's just this conspiracy against me. So like the outcome is not. I don't, like I don't think anybody is like, oh, you know, at this point now I've had enough with Trump, but if I didn't have enough before. Right. So there's there's certainly like the political ramifications. And I think at the end of the day. um, Yeah, I mean, we talk about no one being above the law, but I think it was like. I don't know, Ford, who pardoned Nixon, right? Like there's like a part of it that. To some degree, with his Twitter account suspended or whatever, his banishment from Facebook, like he was more or less out of the news now of course he's still got a very big following but this is just one of those things where you're going to give him tons of press leading into a midterm cycle where his candidates for better or for worse are going to determine whether he's on the ballot in 2024 right like if he his candidates kind of get swept out of there i don't think you're going to have enough of a republican establishment standing behind him now he's got a reason again to start saying that like you know this witch hunt and everything's rigged and everybody's against me whatever it's like a timing thing like i mean i know merrick garland should not be operating in concert with what is going on in the administration but Mm -hmm. at some point like the administration sets the priorities for the justice department and to me this is just not one of them and i i mean I didn't actually know too much about like the nuclear whatever nuclear information he might have had and that's definitely more concerning than some of the other stuff. I would be willing to bet that Trump didn't even know what stuff was in his what stuff was down there either and I'm sure like just like document keeping and record keeping is at the bottom of his priority list. So, uh yeah, I don't know. Uh it's I guess yeah, a lot of thoughts, none of them coherent. I just it's a it's just a weird thing that we're stuck kind of focused on I feel like
2: sure and as you alluded to he was notoriously a notoriously poor record keeper both he personally and his administration in general and there have been a lot of reports that have come out about the chaotic last days in the White House that he only started packing up like two days before they were scheduled to leave and so they were just like literally, I mean, you can't make it up. They're like throwing things in boxes and then just like shipping them down to Mar-a-Lago. And like you said, I mean, there's been some allegations out there that I've seen floating on the internet of like that he was potentially using this stuff for nefarious purposes. I find that very difficult to believe. But I've also I've struggled too with this concept of rule of law, where I, if you believe in the rule of law, that literally means that like no one is above the law, including former presidents. And so that's what we've talked about with the January 6th commission and with this incident here where it's like if, if this is the law then everyone should be forced to follow it. and quite honestly This is what Trump and Republicans were saying about Hillary Clinton back in in 2016. And you know what is crazy is so much hypocrisy on both sides where I saw some Democrats getting excited being like, well, there's a statute that says improper handling of government of classified government documents means that you're disqualified from ever holding future public office, which which was literally what the Trump campaign was saying about Hillary Clinton in 2016 and was largely debunked as like not true. But it's just like crazy how this stuff happens. But that's what's hard is that I, I originally read like that. His first reaction was that he was happy. Like that's why he tweeted it out himself. Not tweeted, put on, posted on True Social because he was like he views this as a political coup for him. And if you look at who came out for him, I want to just briefly run through. It was not only his like diehard supporters, but it's a lot of people that had been a little a little more critical or had backed away from him over the past few months. You have Rand Paul calling out outrageous and Marshall Blackburn. I, I stand with President Trump. Rubio said it was like a third world Marxist Marxist dictatorship. Uh Lindsey Graham came out against it. Roger Marshall from Kansas, no one is safe from political persecution. Um what, what did what um Christy Noam from South Dakota came out against it. DeSantis of of course came out said another escalation in the weaponization of federal agencies against the regime's political opponents. Um Noem said it was un-American. Uh Ted Cruz obviously coming out against it. Um uh, people saying Kevin McCarthy comes out and says that. Um, the intolerable state of weaponized politicalization. So it's just like uh, you know, Elise Stefanik, a dark day in American history, people comparing it to like a banana Republican. It's like then people like you have Democrats rightly going on like the the talk shows this weekend and being like, I thought you know, people were saying like Republicans were saying defund the FBI and uh, you know, the Justice Department is a bunch of like political hacks and Democrats were going on there. Like, I thought Republicans were about like back the blue and like support law enforcement here. And now you have like these you know extremists making threats against law enforcement that's the stuff that's really dangerous honestly like is is the for people after January sixth especially to not see how this can. Uh, can really escalate and backfire. And when you, you start making statements like this against law enforcement, when President Trump is releasing unredacted reports of the FBI agents who have come after him and the judge that was the one that signed the warrant, we, we talked about political violence a, a few episodes ago. That that This stuff is really dangerous where it becomes not just theoretically about like rule of law, but we might be placing people's lives in danger. People who like, whatever you want to say about the deep state who really signed up because like they believe in like civil service and want to make the country better
0: yeah and i mean we're not we're way past the point of hypotheticals right like that guy in cincinnati ohio uh that they shot outside of an fbi like field office the person in washington dc like crashes car um into like a barricade outside the Capitol. um and i mean you know you say what you will about the the protests as well but oh man <laughs> on to the next
2: So one of the defining aspects of this 2022 midterm elections, particularly over the last couple of months of primary season on the Republican side is you have a lot of Trump backed MAGA candidates running against incumbents or at least more established, quote unquote, establishment Republicans. And one of the things that has come out in recent weeks is that Democrats through like the political action committees, have been boosting a lot of the far-right candidates, so the Trump-backed candidates, in their primaries against the more moderate Republicans. The reason that Democrats are doing that, which is probably pretty self-evident, is because Democrats feel that they have a better chance in a general election against a far-right, mega-Trump candidate as opposed to a more moderate Republican candidate. And while Democrats haven't been successful all over the place, they've been successful in a number of races. And that's, it's, it's hard. And so a a few races I wanted to point out in particular was in the Maryland governor's race, um, the Democratic governor's association spent more than $1 million to elevate uh, the Trump back candidate. Uh, And these ads are, they're paying them as like very close to President Trump. They're saying, oh, these, this guy is too conservative and oh, he's too much of a Trump backed candidate. He doesn't represent real like people in Maryland or people in Pennsylvania or Michigan. And the purpose of this is to get like far right primary Republican voters to be like, that's the guy I want. You're saying he's too Trump backed like he, he's too into MAGA. He's, he's too conservative. That's my guy. And so what ends up happening is these candidates have. Been successful. It happened not only in, in the Maryland governor's race, but in Pennsylvania's with Doug Mastriano, in um, Illinois with Darren Bailey, in Arizona with Carrie Lake, and perhaps most distressingly, uh, in Michigan with um, Representative Peter Meyer, who was one of the Republicans, the ten Republicans in the House who had voted to impeach President Trump, was primaried by a far right Trump back candidate, and the. Democratic um, political, the DCCC, which is the the Democratic um, Political Action Committee to support Democratic um, congressional candidates, spent more money in that race than the Trump back guy did. And he ended up winning 52-48. So Peter Meyer, who was, by all accounts, a stand up lawmaker, who had was a moderate Republican that represented Michigan voters well and voted to impeach President Trump is now going to lose his seat. And it's either now between a far-right MAGA candidate or the Democratic candidate. So disappointing, if unsurprising, for me. But what do you got?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I go back to something that, that uh, Dan Fishman said when he was here, and it was like the these two parties are, are uh, out in it for themselves, and they're in it for the money. Um, and I think, you know, there are a couple... there's one kind of the idea that we will be more likely to beat these like trump-backed candidates because they're more extreme or whatever and so you know we think we can capture a portion of that moderate republican i think the other thing is when democrats fundraise it's always like did you see the candidate that that the republicans are running like rush five dollars now in order to make sure that michigan isn't like whatever this like crazy land. Right. And so, well, I think, yeah, they're certainly interested in, in winning elections um, because that's part of how they end up fundraising more money. I think they're also interested in kind of sowing panic because they know panic drives voters and it also drives money, particularly out of state money for these like uh, you know, normally kind of innocuous elections in these different places. And yeah, I mean it's like it's basically a suicide pact and I don't I don't think at the end of the day even if you somehow you know win more seats than you lose through this strategy the few seats that you do lose you're losing them to people you absolutely cannot work with and really like like it is yeah it's this insane game of chicken that that shows that the parties are not really interested even almost in their own political agendas, more so than they are in winning. And I think that's, like, really, really problematic.
2: Sir, sure, it's super disheartening. I also thought of what Dan said of the, the Republicans. It was He's quoting Ralph Nader, right, that the Republicans, Democrats, are both servants to their corporate masters. And, and to a lot of Democrats' credit, they've come out against it for exactly the reasons you've said, Uh, The Michigan Secretary of State, a woman, Jocelyn Benson, said that if we're going to say, this is quote, if we're going to say as a party or as leaders that we believe in a healthy democracy, which requires citizens to be informed and and engaged, we have to live out those values in everything we do. And interference with another party's primary does not reflect those values. And she said it was a dangerous game to play to support election deniers. And kind of building off that, Representative Mark Pocan from Wisconsin said, quote, it's a dangerous proposition for a campaign committee to instead of propelling Democrats trying to propel a Republican in a primary, because they actually may win in the end, and you'll have someone who's even more extreme. And that that's like, like, you're saying, whether it's from just a principle perspective, or it's from a practical perspective, it's just super dangerous. And it's, it's so frustrating. And I, I'm piling on Democrats right now, because they're the ones engaging in this tactic. But by no means do I think Republicans are above this tactic if if they could, right? I mean, I'm sure if they could tie people to Ilhan Omar or um, AOC, like they they would boost those far left candidates too, because for the exact same reasons, but it's just like, it's goes to a larger point that we've talked about in these primaries, where, where do you look at either party for pickup seats? You look at like the most moderate people because you're like, all right, well, we can probably swing them like a little bit, all we have to do is move it a little a little bit and it's like the people that are most moderate become the biggest targets in in elections which is again continues to lead to increased polarization
0: yeah well said i i guess if i only add one other thing like yeah i mean the democratic national uh or the, the dnc in general has yeah long been not interested in in and really letting the democratic processes play out. I, I mean, whatever you have to think about Bernie Sanders, like, you know what happened during that, during the campaign, he just like was flat out, not given a fair shot. And someone could argue because he didn't have a chance to win because he was too far left. But at the end of the day, it wasn't about the policy. You know I mean? you're a yeah.
2: You're a yeah. So, yeah. And finally, sorry. I go, I, we, we still got, we still got a minute here. All right. I, it's just one thing, like as th- some of those quotations were saying that like if if Democrats are so successful that they've boosted these candidates so well, we're talking about the governor of Arizona, the governor of Illinois, the governor of Pennsylvania. These are some potentially key states down the line in terms of like certifying elections, and you have now elevated election deniers into what's maybe not a 50-50 shot, but they're now in a general election where they could very easily be elected governor. And now like one of the classic politician things on both sides is like in the in the small term for a better chance at winning now we put ourselves more at risk down the road well in two years if arizona is refusing to certify the election for whichever democrat wins it because kerry lake doesn't believe in the election results you have no one to blame but yourselves
0: yeah it would be hard to hard to (laughs) hard to argue against that shall we take it home
2: final topic So perhaps the biggest winner of the recent elections has not actually been any candidate, but has been abortion rights as they were on the ballot in Kansas. And it was important in Kansas for a number of reasons. First, because it was the first one of its kind where there was a constitutional amendment proposed that would allow Kansas lawmakers to go against what was currently enshrined in the state constitution of Kansas. So in Kansas right now, uh, abortions are legal up to 22 weeks into the pregnancy. And there are additional uh, restrictions. There's like a mandatory 24-hour waiting period and there's uh, parental consent for minors. So you could argue that Kansas's abortion laws currently are fairly moderate and potentially fairly mainstream, but the constitutional amendment would have allowed state legislatures, which is a Republican dominated legislature, to increase restrictions as they saw fit up to and including a potential total ban on abortion. This was the first significant fight on the ballot about abortion rights since the Supreme Court repealed Roe, overturned Roe a couple of months ago. And so it got a a ton of attention and while people thought it was going to be close, it, it ended up not being close as um, Kansas voters rejected the constitutional Amendment by almost a, a 20 point margin. And that was it was significant and in, in a far bigger outcome than most observers thought and a, a far bigger success for abortion rights advocates and potentially could signal greater success for Democrats looking to enshrine abortion rights in states like California or Washington or Michigan, and also potentially sound an alarm for more conservative anti-abortion rights advocates that this issue is now energizing more liberal, more Democratic voters in the upcoming election. So, Ricky, what did you think of the results in Kansas?
0: Um, I mean, I do, I do quite enjoy ending on a positive note, uh, for at least from, from my perspective, <laughs> from my perspective. I mean, what, uh, like, you know, when we had our, uh, row discussion, I, I feel like I posed this question, like, is, is this, you know, perhaps the silver lining of that decision, which is that, um, which is that you know, voters now have a cause to go to the polls for particularly Democrat leaning voters. Um, The yeah, the margin of victory, 20 percent in a in a relatively red leaning state, I think, says a lot about what people feel like. You know, the right balance of abortion protections should be, I, I will say the I don't know if you read the like the language that the people that people were voting on it is absolutely wild that they were voting on the value them both amendment which the amendment is to basically strike down the con- right like the constitutional protection so then future laws could be I mean it like makes absolutely no sense and I hope for Kansas that this is actually what everyone was intending to vote on. Cause I read the thing like three times. And if I was in the polls for like 20 seconds, I might be confused out of my mind. Um, so, so there's, there's that one piece. I think um, the, the, you know, the definitely talked about kind of galvanizing voters. Um, I, I like, I think, yeah, that this is, a moment that I wish that Democrats were more focused on and like leaning into this, you know, with 2022 midterms in mind, than some of the other things that have like really been going on to kind of distract from this. Cause I, yeah, I think like foreign policy and then sort of social issues domestically are the two main kind of drivers that the, that the federal government can really impact. Um, And yeah, this is one that clearly people feel strongly about. Um, And yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I don't know that I have too much more to say about that.
2: Yeah. You, you texted me about this and I said, love it because my big argument for anyone that listened to that episode was that like states should be able to decide it for themselves. And Kansas voters spoke overwhelmingly that that's, that they are, content with their laws and again I I gave a very brief overview of Kansas abortion laws to me those are very reasonable laws and it, it appears to Kansas voters they're very reasonable and so it's that's what the Supreme Court always wanted I think that's what people got so caught up in some of like the rhetoric and the the hot takes and the email headlines and whatever it was was that like oh abortion rights are all gone now and they don't care where they are in some states because of what's happened but what the Supreme Court was doing was turning it back over to the voters where Justice Alito wrote that that's where it should have always been. And Kansas voters spoke and they they spoke very, very loudly. And I think, Ricky, you did allude to this, whereas like for 50 years, this was an energizing issue for conservative voters because they felt like it had been taken out of their hands. And so what did they do? This was a big issue of like, if you believe in, if you were pro-life, if you believe in protecting the life of the child, that energized a lot of people to get out and vote and allowed for the uh, appointing of many more conservative justices like down the line of course but that was the snowball effect now that the pendulum has shifted back the other way it's like the classic the people that are on top maybe get a little. Complacent, and the people that are on the bottom are much more like energized by this. Where like people were angry and people were fired up about that, and it brought people out to the polls like it hadn't before. Was an animating issue, and to your point, like this should be something that Democrats are like seizing on and using this issue to churn people out to the polls. Yeah, I, I,
0: so the, I guess building on that a little bit, or or thinking about it slightly differently, I think the one thing that was cool about. This particular um, election, although I I, um, ballot question, although I have a lot of problems with the fact that, like, yeah, the wording is super wild. And then not not only that, they specifically wanted it on the primary ballot and not on the actual ballot because they're thinking, you know, Kansas voters typically lean red. And we know who shows up at at the primary elections versus um, versus, you know, the November like the big show. Right. Um, so there are like a number of reasons that like, there's a little too much strategy going on here, um, that were worrisome, but I think one of the cool things and which I would love to see far more of is these like social policy questions actually getting on the ballot rather than having to mix match who you're voting for, for fiscal policy with who you're voting for, for abortion rights or, you know, whatever. Like I think. There are a lot of things that our government had, like, has square responsibility over. And then there are some of these other things that don't allow you to kind of figure out, Okay, yeah, don't allow you to be the socially progressive, fiscally conservative person that maybe you want to be. And A, in a lot of these other red states, obviously the ballot questions aren't being put out there. And I don't think it's necessarily because they think that they're going to win in a landslide. I think many of them are probably afraid that there's a similar possibility in in a lot of these places. So, I, I mean, one, I wish nationally or federally we could actually look at using ballot questions in some way. Sorry, could you say that again? Oh, wow, Sorry. my iPhone is not. Um, <laughs> it's, it's tired of me talking already. But but in that seems to be something that continually like strangleholds our government is, you know, how do we think about social questions when we're also trying to understand, yeah, like infrastructure and, you know, whatever our our other priority should be. And what ends up happening is that maybe we elect people on what we think our top priority is, but they do, you know, number three through 10 in a completely opposite way than we might like. And now we're in a weird position where we, yeah, we don't are are we're like limiting our own options, um, in in almost a weird way.
2: Yeah, put it to the people, and I think that's one of the beauties we've we've talked extensively about how difficult it is to pass constitutional amendments, which generally I think is a good thing. But when you take something like abortion out of the constitution and you just put it to the people, that actually gives us a little more freedom to make laws about it because it's not infringing on some constitutional right. And I think like even if you did that with some of the other more quote-unquote controversial like, uh, social subjects, if you just like said, all right, well, I don't think the constitution talks about this. Let's just put it to the people. You might actually get some better results.
0: I and and I think that that's fair, but I don't think that many of these questions are being put to the people. I think the can't like the Kansas Valley question was a little bit more of an aberration than what you might hope following something like the Supreme Court decision.
2: Wow, look at you! Right on the money. <laughs> that does it. Six topics, ten minutes apiece. Until next time, Ricky. We'll see you.
1: We stay up all night on Garner Avenue debating all the issues of the day. No agenda, not yet. Talking heads running around till we forget where it was we began. Some mornings you were away. Some mornings left your ego bruised, but what I wouldn't give For hope I used to find In a case of lion's head folks of different minds Because even though it did not share The pains we share all That American idea Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the Hallway but to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than a rain Somewhere along the line We seem to have forgotten The value sometimes Being wrong Some mornings you away, Some mornings let your ego bruise But what I wouldn't give For the hope I Used to find in an occasional lion's head, and folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we share an American ideal. Friends made all the arguments in an early morning bus. I need an early morning bus. There's hope behind the bluster, because though Main Street may not sell, it's full of folks. Just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days will leave your ego through But well, I wouldn't give For hope I used to find And chase the lion's head Folks of different mind, because though we did not share opinions, we share On that American ideal. Friends made over arguments, and an early morning buzz. what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of Lions Head. Folks of different minds because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Transmit over mats in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.